I'm a little snorfy today. I, uh, I'm just kind of getting over a cold, so you have to pardon me if I have to stop and sneeze for eight minutes and be in the middle of this. It's all right. I'm. I'm. Uh, I don't think we're we're not the most high high tech production out here yet. So I'm literally wrapped in a blanket with a microphone. Hello, Alaska. This is Matt Buxton, and this is Pat Race, and this is a podcast about Alaska. So we're going to dive into a topic that's um, a little uncomfortable and a little heavy, but uh, something that we feel is really important to talk about, and that is. Um, harassment, uh, both in the in the state in general and uh, specifically in the Alaska State Legislature. Um, Matt, can you tell me a little bit about like what's been going on? So you know, it shouldn't really be news to anyone, and I'm sure it's not news to you either. But you know, the the we're talking about in in kind of broad strokes here the the Me Too movement, which is this kind of grand reckoning uh, with kind of long-standing harassment and sexual harassment in the workplace. Uh, and, you know, it's going through every part of society right now, and the last legislature is no different. So we've had two legislators resign, and there's really a general sense that they're not going to be the last. So when we're talking about harassment, we're not just talking about, like, sexual assault. We're talking about the, the whole spectrum of harassment, um, from the institutional structures that support it to the offhand comments that diminish women and uh, try to put them in a place. And preserve the kind of existing power structure, too. Yeah, exactly. So um, why do you think this is all happening? Well, I, <laughs> I, I was going to ask why do you think this is happening now, but I feel like this is happening now because of what's happening at the national level. Like the president is mm-hmm. uh, an accused sexual har- harasser uh, who is it's just not been dealt with. He's basically admitted to it on tape. Um, and I think that we're seeing a lot of this uh, kind of tide rising up in reaction to that. Um, this is people putting their foot down and saying, we, we've had enough. The president has not really, you know, he's, he's faced many, many counts of what should be disqualifying behavior, and uh, he's not been held accountable for it. And so I think there's these marches that we've seen, um, renewed political action, and very much this, this the Me Too movement, I think, is very much... Um, an effort to bring accountability where there hasn't been it before. Yeah. So about a year ago, I, I went to the women's March um, and it was a really powerful experience for me. And I attended again this year. Um, and one of the, one of the most impactful moments was a speech that was given by a, a local woman named Libby Bacalar. Um, and she talked about her uh, grandfather's imprisonment um, because he was a union organizer. And she talked about, um, overcoming fear, and she talked about standing up to fear. Uh, she framed fear as a as a petty bully, and she just had some really wonderful words to share with the audience that day. And so, I I wanted to go and sit down with her. And so let's um, let's go ahead and listen to that interview, and then you and I can chat some more. Sounds good. Okay, so I'm here with Libby Bacalar. Uh, she's an attorney, works in, uh, as an assistant to the Attorney General uh, in the state of Alaska, and is perhaps uh, most well known for her blog, uh, One Hot Mess, where she writes uh, wonderful uh, comedy and uh, satirical articles and uh, strong feminist articles. Right. And yeah, and, and I would just say, you know, my activism and a blog is totally a personal thing. It's completely separate from my work life, has nothing to do with that. Um, it's just First Amendment protected activity that I engage in. 
on my own time because I feel like the stuff that I talk about is really important. Um, mainly, um, you know, my blog started out as a parenting blog largely, but uh, over time it sort of morphed into um, issues of social justice and advocacy on the things that I care about. And as I started writing more and more about those things, I started getting braver and braver about speaking out about justice for women, for people of color, for low-income folks, um, and LGBT community, and just generally marginalized groups of people that don't have a voice and that are living under um, a a pretty hegemonic patriarchal system. You've talked about this uh, in your speech for the Women's March, but you you need to draw a line between what you do in your personal life and in your uh, public life. Right. I mean, so I do work for the government, um, and in some ways working for the government is one of the best places to be in terms of being able to have protected speech. I, under the Constitution, can't be penalized for expressing my First Amendment opinions on my own time. Um, and that's what I do with my blog, and that's what I do with the Women's March, and so I draw that line, or just in general, and you know, I draw that line pretty starkly. Um, but I think the climate we're in right now, um, and what's going on in the world right now, is too serious to just be afraid to speak out and defend the causes and the principles that I believe in, and to use whatever small platform I have and whatever talents I have to advance those causes. Um, as much as possible. Yeah, and I, I went to the Women's March this year, and you, um, your speech was really moving. And and as I was walking down the hill with people from the march, it was it, it was reverberating through the crowd, and I heard all these people s- like saying lines and kind of reinterpreting and trying to remember the parts that they felt were important. And um, I'm sure you had a lot of people talk to you afterwards about like, can I get the the text of that speech. Can I, I did can post I, it on my blog, yeah. actually, along with some letters that my grandfather wrote from prison. Um, I spoke in the speech about my grandfather um, union organizing in the 20s and serving out four years of a 10-year sentence in uh, federal prison for that, and he was a political prisoner. Um, and I don't really believe in ghosts or the afterlife or anything like that, but I do have this sense of his aura around me. And as I was transcribing the typed letters that he had written, um, I felt really like I was in his sort of in, in a moment with him, just reliving what he had written to his mother from jail, which was essentially in old timey sort of language. Um, I'm sorry that you don't agree with my stance on this, but I'm not doing this to torture you. I'm doing this because I believe in this cause, and I'll be out of here as soon as possible, and this is the right thing to do, and um, I think it's going to end up as as after the Civil War, and I think he was referring to the end of slavery after the Civil War, and he was analogizing it to the labor, the dawn of the labor movement. So, I mean, I don't think there is social progress uh, without those kinds of sacrifices, without those kinds of um, sort of a willingness to put some skin in the game, like I said. Um, yeah, and you talked in your speech about overcoming fear. You called fear a, a petty bully, and uh, like how how have you how have you found that in your own life? How have you been able to overcome fear? So I think it's taken a long time, and it's not that I don't feel fear. It's I realize that there are more important things than being afraid of what 
other people think of what I say, of what other people threaten me um, with. Uh, and I think when you do double down on your belief system and you have a belief system that's grounded in a sense of ethics and a sense of morality and something you really believe in, then that is a lodestar for everything else and nothing else can penetrate. And if you sort of convince yourself of that, you start to realize that really nothing's going to happen. I mean, and even when something does happen, you just endure whatever it is that's happening because you care so much about these issues. So I think that's why I told the story about my grandfather, because he, you know, really took that principle to an extreme, you know, with going so far as to be convict, prosecuted and convicted and imprisoned and um, being a political prisoner in his own country and for something that was subsequently recognized in the law as right. Um, and I don't get the sense from reading what he wrote that he was particularly afraid. Um, I just think he was consistently driven by this sense of rectitude. And that kind of just takes priority over everything. And when you have that sense of something is wrong here and it needs to be called out and it needs to be vocalized and it needs to have attention and brought to it and light shown on it, then all of the rest is just white noise. And it's like, I don't care what, you know, an elected officials think of what I say. I don't care what anyone I, I encounter in the world thinks of what I say. It's, it's about like, embodying your principles. Right. It's yeah. about embodying your principles and I guess living your truth, whatever that is. Um, I really believe in the things that I write about. I really believe in what I'm saying. Um, I really believe in our constitutional democracy and standing up for it. Um, and I'm just really not afraid of anybody trying to stop me from doing that, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, because it's just that important, I guess. Do you ever find, do you ever have trouble finding humor in, in the things you're writing about? Because you write such humorous articles. I, I wonder if, it, if that ever dries up for you, if, ever, if it ever feels so serious that you can't find that in there. No, you know, I can always find a funny angle most of the time, um, but I do sometimes write more serious things about, you know, some more philosophical musings about sort of the stuff we're talking about right now, um, the kinds of things that I, you know, my philosophy on activism, my philosophy on engagement. Um, one of my biggest guiding philosophies is not to malign or engage in a negative way with Trump supporters, basically. Mm -hmm. um, it's To me, it's completely unproductive. Um, and more to the point is that fighting with your fellow citizens in the climate that we're in right now is, is, is making yourself an unwitting foot soldier in sort of this autocratic takeover of our democracy. Um, Autocracies and fascist governments the world over rely on the cannibalization of the populace. They, it's a divide and conquer strategy, and it's as old as civilization. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to be part of that. And so one of the things I don't do is fight on the internet, fight in person, fight with people that um, are, you know, think everything's just fine and dandy right now. It's it's. It's just not productive. And so, you know, it's about how, like I said in the speech too, it's about how you use your time and how you use your voice and those things are really interconnected. 
it's like, you know, you only have so many seconds, minutes, hours on this planet. And how are you going to use that time? Am I going to use it trying to convert some stranger I don't know on Facebook? Or am I going to use it, you know, writing something to reach as broad of an audience as possible and pass on my ideas and inspire somebody? I mean, I got a note from a teenage girl the other day that was really one of the things that just made my week, basically, where she said, you know, I just want to, I'm a teenager here and I'm politically active and I just want to thank you for what you do. And to me, that was huge because here's a, a young girl who's reading my blog and it's re resonating with her and she took time to write to me and I'm like you know hearing that I know that I'm doing something and I'm putting something out in the world and I want to spend time doing that and not arguing yeah in some it's easy to take the bait to like very to get easy. into those you know petty arguments it's almost impossible not to take the bait and it takes a lot of self-discipline um, not to take the bait, um, be it in person, especially on, in the anonymity of the internet. And then you don't feel good when you're done. You don't win anything. And you just feel like, well, what did I do for the resistance tonight? Nothing except for waste time on Facebook. And I mean, you know, it's like arguably that's all I'm doing anyway, right? <laughs> but I mean, it's it's really even, there are gradations of, of sort of wasting time on the internet, I guess, you know? But it matters how you engage, and it matters, you're right, it matters how you use your time, and if you're spending your time trying to win over someone who's not going to be won over uh, versus trying to uh, articulate a point, like, I think that you're right, you're better, you, the better use of your time in that situation is to make a broader statement. And I think if you look at any social progress that's been made in this country over time, the source of the success of every sort of major social movement has been in in the actual activism and talking about the issues and shining light on the issues, not in catering to some oppositional forces or engaging with them in some futile way. Um, so I think there's actually historical empirical evidence for that that the more effective way to use your time and your voice is affirmatively rather than defensively or in some sort of reactive way. Now, I mean, I think there, I don't really know much about that from an evidentiary standpoint, if that's true or not. I, I feel like it's true for myself. I, I feel like I'm wasting time when I start arguing with people yeah. um, because to me, it's not subject to argument, just like I'm not subject to being afraid of saying it. So can we bring this down to from like we're very bird's eye view here, but like on the level of Alaska, like what kind of things do you see playing out um, like, like in our state as far as this like national, there's kind of this national row going on and like how, where, how do you see that uh, locally? So I've been pretty amazed at the local buy-in on a lot of these socially progressive ideas. I think there is a huge amount of young progressive energy in this state and it needs to be capitalized on as much as possible. I mean, I think there are just so many enthusiastic young people that care about this stuff and that are paying attention to it. Um, and I think a lot of that gets drowned out by sort of the old guard. Um, but I think there's I know Alaska is always just one of these really wild card states where no one can kind of pin it down. Mm -hmm. um, 
but it, and maybe I'm just in a bubble, but in my bubble, I feel like there's a ton of endorsement of the idea of sort of a system of or a willingness to evaluate a system of white supremacy, a system of colonialism, a system of misogyny, and look at those issues critically and ask what we can do about them and and just even and just talk about them. And so I, I actually think there's a lot um, the biggest asset that this state has is its young progressive population on that score. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you caught it, but there was a um, thing at K2 the other night. Um, Beth Curtula hosted, and uh, Senator McKinnon and Representative Sponholtz, uh, and I think uh, an HR woman from the university and another gal from a national organization were there. Um, did you? You didn't happen to catch? I didn't. Did no, it sounds yeah. amazing. I'm so really missed. I missed the, it. Well, I'm sure it's on. Uh, it's it's on 360 North. Oh, but, I'm going to check the, it out. Uh, um, it was a discussion about harassment, and they didn't talk about any specific issues. They mm -hmm. just talked about kind of uh, because they didn't want to get off in the weeds on like pointing this, fingers this, and yeah, stuff. This particular yeah. person, and also because mm -hmm. they're coming from different backgrounds mm -hmm. too. But um, it was uh, it was really interesting to me because they brought up the point that. Um, uh, and I think it was Ivy Sponholtz that brought up the point that uh, representation has changed things so much because the the place that we are now, we're seeing this year, we're seeing legislators step down, we're seeing people yeah. being held accountable for actions mm -hmm. that they wouldn't have been held accountable for before. Yes. Um, things are coming out that wouldn't have come out. And um, I, I would argue, it's, it's my sense that this isn't a change of you know, it's not that all this bad stuff is happening this year. It's that all this bad stuff is being, like, dealt with this year, and that it may, it wasn't in the past. And um, I guess the point they made is that, like, the more women that are on in boardrooms and in uh, editorial rooms and in the legislature and in positions of power, the more those voices are represented, and the the more those voices are heard. And we're not going to go back from where we are now. That like the people who worry that that this is just like a little phase of like house cleaning, they, this is kind of the new normal is what they're arguing. And so I think that's a very good point. And what I was going to say is that norms are always changing. Um, and particularly for women and people of color in this country, what's considered acceptable is being challenged constantly in one way or the other. Of course, I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, when that whole Aziz Ansari thing came out, mm -hmm. um, and there was all of that question of, whether this was rape or what it was exactly. And I even myself said, well, you know, I've had a million encounters like that. It doesn't sound that bad. And I realized that, no, there's another generation below me, younger than me, that's saying, no, this isn't good enough. It's not just enough for me to sit here and have an icky sexual encounter. That's not cons real consent. That's not really what this should be like. Just like a generation older than me thought a little grab ass from their boss was just something you dealt with. So what seems to me to be insane to the other generation above me seemed just normal. Right. What seems to me to be meh seems to the next generation to be insane. And so I think that's great because I think we're moving from, I mean, all the way to, you can take this back forever to, you know, women are property and the 19th Amendment and couldn't have credit cards. I mean, there's a million different pieces of progress to this. But that, that Aziz um, sorry thing stuck in my mind as sort of a, a piece of progress that I, that I didn't realize myself 
that I was sort of brainwashed myself. It's in some where you way. realize that progress has like passed you. Yes, and you're like, whoa, exactly. I'm the like old out exactly. of touch person. Yes, yeah, exactly. I really did. And I was sort of like, wow, like, um, but I had the, you know, self-awareness and I guess intellectual capacity to say, you know, maybe I'm wrong for thinking this isn't such a big deal just because this seems like your typical encounter. You know, there's a generation of women coming of age who I'm old enough to be their mother. Yeah. And they're saying, no. Yeah. And I'm like, great, you know? And so I think, you know, there is sort of this reckoning happening now where the more women you have in positions of power on every end of the political spectrum, you will find pretty much a universal unwillingness to put up with this kind of stuff. Um, and there's sort of been this awakening to see the, the little, I guess, microaggressions that have happened throughout the course of my life at least as a 40 year old um, looking back and feeling oh like all those guys in school that would cheat off me or ask for my notes or demand my work um, or accuse me of plagiarism or you know in an intellectual academic environment how you would be bullied or in a work environment you know this person calling you hun this other person telling you to make eye contact this other person telling you you should smile this other person not giving you a promotion that you're due even though a man is in the same exact position. I mean, these things have happened to me personally in the course of my life, and I'm realizing that they are not, quote-unquote, normal. But, of course, what is normal changes. It's a moving target, and that's what progress is. So um, I'm deeply interested in where all of this collective female energy and and productive anger is going. Um, I think regardless of what women voted for Trump versus Clinton, whatever, I think a lot of women were hoping to see a female president, a female president. Um, I think there is a lot of internalized anger around that missed opportunity, whatever you think of her herself. Mm -hmm. Um, Just the idea of, of being able to say to your daughter, look, there's a woman president, whatever, whoever it happens to be. Um, And the idea that, you know, in all of this sort of, um, house cleaning that's going around in the legislative branches of government, both at the state and federal level, that the chief executive of the nation has also been accused of a million incidences of sexual misconduct and continues to serve, I think is forcing a collective anger um, and that there's, it's playing out in these other fora. Yeah. Um, And I think that's good. The state legislature seems so ill-equipped to deal with this stuff. I mean, I feel like they've been catapulted from 1963 into, you know, 2018 very rapidly, and that they're struggling to come to grips with what this means for them. Have you observed that? I don't know for sure because I, you know, I do have a working relationship with oh, them in my job, and so I try to kind of, yeah, I kind of try to steer okay. clear from all of that, but. You know, just from a, from a regular citizen standpoint and from what I read in the newspaper and what I see um, with my own eyes uh, happening, yeah, I mean, I think they're facing a serious reckoning, but I do think there's a good faith effort going on to acknowledge it and to, and to step back and say, you know, this boys club frat house, that culture that we've been allowing to proliferate here in Juneau since forever has to change it has to change and i think you know the fact that it's happening this year um is a result of the broader national movement the simmering collective what i call productive anger of women 
Um, and I think it's really, uh, it's forcing a reckoning um, that I think is going to ultimately be a really good thing. There may be backlash along the way. That's to be expected. But um, every, every, like I said, every social movement, it is, it's progressive. That's why there's, that's why it's the word progressive. It's two, it's, you know, one step forward, two steps forward, one step back. That's just how things go. Um, but so, I see the p- potential for a lot of positive change there. Yeah. So, so um, you're someone who's navigated the balance of being uh, employed by the state government and also having a strong personal voice. What advice would you have for people who are in that position where they're maybe in the state government and they have strong opinions and they don't know how to express them? I mean, what I would say is, you know, you have a constitutional right when you work for the government to express your political opinion um, on your own time. And that is that is the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights. And so actually, if you are a government worker, you are in a better position than people in the private sector to express your views. Now, you may be scared of retaliation and you may be scared of um, you know pressure and that kind of thing, but you have a constitutional right to do that. And I think reminding superiors of that and reminding sort of the bureaucratic infrastructure of that is crucial because the government is the only entity that has to comply with the Constitution. And so your employer has to let you have that voice you on your own time. You know, you, you don't use state time and resources to do that stuff, but you have every right to have an opinion and express it, and you should not be afraid to do it because the second you become afraid of doing that, that's one further paper cut in the constitutional framework that's already under assault right now. When all of our constitutional rights collectively are being threatened by a a federal executive that doesn't have seemingly any regard for that document, it's more important than ever, I think, to assert your right under the federal constitution and the Alaska constitution, which is stronger than the federal constitution in terms of its protections of individual liberties. We live in such a small state. I mean, everyone kind of is connected by, you know, hear about this like six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I feel like it's like the one like degree two of, degrees yeah, of one, everybody. Two yeah. degrees of Libby Bacala. Two degrees of Sarah yeah. Palin or yeah. something, yeah. right? Two degrees of Sarah Palin. But the, yeah, that's good. Um, but, I, but I feel like the, um, like what you talked about, uh, about retaliation. So how do you, in, in small communities, in small work environments, in small states um, where everyone is so interconnected, um, how, how do you dismantle systems that protect people? I mean, I think, again, the point is to stay focused on the issues. I think if you stay focused on the issues instead of the individual people that are either implementing bad policy or enabling bad policy or arguing with individuals, I think what you want to continue to do is basically advocate for causes and advocate for ideas, not so much advocate for you know, and I love to make fun of Trump as much as the next person on my blog. I mean, I'm not saying I don't get really enjoy a good Trump riff on the blog. I'm just saying, you know, and, and that's the president. I'm talking about, you know, you asked about the small state thing. I think it's very crucial um, not to attack individuals, not to argue and fight with them, but to stay focused on the policy issues involved. I mean, to take the example of the legislative um, you know, sexual harassment in the legislature. That is an issue. 
you know, you can talk about who's done it, who's enabled it, why it exists, who's lied about it, who hasn't lied. I mean, you can go back and forth about it forever. But the idea is you want to, I think if you stay focused on the issue itself, how do we solve this issue? Well, you know, we get more women in positions of leadership. We, t- we, we expose the issue. We start talking about it, the fact that it even exists. And you just staying focused on the issue rather than the individual implementers of whatever the problem is to some degree, I think, yeah. is, is it, crucial. That's, it's so tough for me because I feel like to expose an issue, you do need to stop, talk about some of the specific things that have happened. Like you, there are specific instances that are pretty horrific and to, to talk about those things. Right. Are, There's like, no way to save bad actors from themselves. I right. mean, you can't protect people. Well, yeah. And you shouldn't protect and people, you I would argue. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the things that like kind of came to light is that like Bill Stoltz went on a tirade against uh, a colleague, a female colleague. Oh, I saw that in the paper. He called her an effing C word and then he punched out a bathroom window in the Capitol building. And that never came to light during the legislative session of, you know, whatever year it was, 2016, I think. And it's so strange to me. Like, I feel like in that, in an instance like that, you need to talk about the specifics and ask why that isn't something that was dealt with or that we all know about or that, you know, I mean, because right. to, to have that instance occur and not be addressed seems a little too polite. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is that it is sort of a balance. You have to take these individual egregious instances and bring them to light. And I mean, on one end of the spectrum, you have, you know, the Harvey Weinstein sort of seminal exposure of this conduct all the way down to whatever is on the other end of the spectrum. Um, I don't think there is a way to fully deal with these issues without, you know, exposing individual bad actors and bringing individual bad bad actors and their conduct to light. And I think we are seeing that because, of course, you can't you can't talk about these issues strictly in the hypothetical. Right. I guess my point is, my point in saying it's important to focus on the issues and not the individuals is not to say we should protect individual bad actors or hide what they're doing. It's to say we should think less about why this particular person is an asshole or why this particular person woman is telling the truth or not telling the truth and and use those examples that come to light to to have a dialogue about the bigger culture that allowed it to happen in the first place and where where that culture comes from and what we can do to dismantle that um and so i think these individual instances can be used as case studies for the broader issues and dealing with the bigger cultural shifts to ensure that these things aren't treated just as one-offs or just as some sort of individual, you know, sort of anomaly, right, or an aberration or an anomaly. You know, there's a reason why somebody feels like that's okay to do that, right? It's that's the group think, the group psychology of that environment and why does that psychology exist and why has it been allowed to proliferate? And I guess that's what I mean by staying focused on the issues, because when you ask those questions, then you solve a bigger problem. You, you can get rid of a million individuals, and it won't solve the cultural problem underlying it if you don't talk about the reason that conduct is tolerated and hidden and not talked about, et cetera, et cetera. So I think individual instances are um, illustrative, but there's a danger of focusing too much on the individual right. and at the expense of making a broader cultural change. Mm-hmm. So you have to ask the questions of why did this happen and why and what can we do to change the culture and the environment such that it doesn't happen anymore. 
So pr- productive anger, I really like that term. I think it's something that I, I think it kind of encapsulates for me exactly what I have felt with a lot of um, just how, I guess, the 2016 elections went, how 2017's unfolded, and how 2018 is already beginning to kind of take its um, uh, crappy shape, I guess. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I think it's really, 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 really good takeaway and a really good, I think, call to action. Yeah, and I think that um, that idea really embodies what's happening right now. It is a lot of angry people putting that anger to use in a positive way. One thing I mentioned in that interview with Libby was this... Um, forum discussion that was held at KTOO uh, and that discussion was phenomenal so um, I'd, I'd absolutely recommend if people are interested in learning more about this that they listen to that and we'll include it in the show notes um, but but one thing that they talked about in that discussion is the importance of of men discussing with other men uh, this issue because this can't just be uh, women teaching men this has to be men teaching men mm-hmm yeah, I think I mean this is a this is something we kind of discussed when we first talked about doing an episode about this, which is you know that we're two straight male dudes who've lived a you know have our own perspective that has been largely free of the kind of problems that a lot of women face every single day. And I think there's I had a definitely initial hesitancy to even kind of pretend like I knew anything about it, I think. And I think that I think you have a good point, which is I think talking about it in some way and especially recognizing our own limitations in it is really important. Uh, One of the really big takeaways I had from listening to Libby is that, you know, she was talking about the Aziz Ansari um, story where she looked at that and said, um, you know, I thought this, this doesn't look that it looked gross, but not necessarily bad. And I think there, there's an important, part for a lot of people to look at what they've been doing and what they've been thinking and say well maybe I'm wrong you know and maybe maybe I don't have it exactly figured out and maybe things can change and maybe it's just important for me to listen to other people's experiences and take that for and take that into consideration when when I'm interacting with new people in my life. Yeah it's easy to get set in your ways to come up with kind of a a, a ethos that you live by and then uh, and then find yourself resistant to change that um and and i think i'm that's for me what i'm trying to do is to break down some of my um i guess to break down some of my perspectives because i think that i'm really sort of cocooned in privilege like it's really hard to see around or over or through uh this this giant uh you know pedestal of of privilege that i was born on and to recognize that like you know i i believe strongly in in equality um and that everyone should have these equal opportunities um but i live in a culture where that isn't not the that isn't the case and so if i really do believe in that i should be trying to break down that pedestal of privilege and to raise other people's up so that we're all kind of on the same level uh and that means a lot of listening and a lot of of amplifying of other voices um and uh trying to really understand and trying to put myself in other people's shoes uh, which is really hard to do, but and and makes me uncomfortable a lot of times. But it is something that I like that discomfort 
it generally means I'm on the right path. If I have this kind of like squishy feeling in my stomach that I might be wrong about something, it kind of it kind of yeah. means that I might be on to the right answer eventually. Yeah, I think maybe the goal is to be more uncomfortable. You know, I think <laughs> you know, I think a lot of pushback from the Me Too pushback to the Me Too movement rests in people saying, "Oh, I guess well, it's never okay to ask a woman out." And it's it's <laughs> like can you just set aside your ego for like a second, yeah. you know, and, and it, maybe it isn't about telling you what to do or what not to do, but just how to not like, just to be a slightly better person. You know, I think there's people are just asking you not to be terrible and that's, that's what they're asking for. And I think, um, well, that's a great point. I mean, like the courtship is fraught with peril. And I think that there are a lot of people who just like can't navigate. Hey, I like you and I don't know how to express it. And so it, that gets tied up in this and that frustration that like I think everyone knows that frustration of of unrequited love or or just like a, a desire to find a partner and not be being able to find that person. And I think that feeling like an avenue is closed off to you or that you can't follow kind of the traditional footsteps that you've been taught can can be frustrating. And I think that separating that out from this issue of, you know, like treating people like human beings is going to be an important part of this for, for men. Like I, I think about how I grew up and I was just, I was kind of reflecting on this last night. And I think that a lot of kids my age were given this kind of, uh, um, you know, like you, you fight the battle and you win the the woman as a prize or you like stop her from getting married to the wrong person and then she's yours. And it's just like kind of this trope of a, of a woman as an object or as a reward. And, um, you know, that's not what relationships should be. And uh, the thing I, I wrote that that I think I'm kind of been coming to over the last couple of years is that like you you shouldn't be looking for like the buttercup to your to your Wesley. You should be trying to find the the Fezig to your Inigo. And um, I, I think that we need to concentrate on what it means to be a good friend and to be a, a good, you know, this good citizen, a good um, person on this earth who spends time with other people, um, because that's what I think gets us to the next place we need to be is we need to be living in a society that has, you know, 500 words for friendship. All right. I think that's a good note to end on and we'll pick it up again next time. Uh, we'll see you later, Matt. Yeah. See you later. Oh, I guess um, in the meantime, um, we want to hear from you guys. Is there anything, any other issues that you want us to be talking about? You can find me on Twitter at Matt Buxton. Yeah, and you can find me on Twitter at Alaska Robotics, um, or you can find me at the Alaska Robotics Gallery in downtown Juneau. Uh, feel free to stop by them there on Wednesdays. And I think we don't, do we still have an email account? Yeah. Hey guys at helloalaska.pizza is our email address, and uh, you can find the show online, which you have already done, uh, <laughs> at helloalaska.pizza. Until next time. Goodbye, Alaska. Goodbye, Alaska.